everyone. I'm Mark. And I'm Nick. Welcome to another episode of Letters to Podcast. In this episode, we're going back to our Law and Order series, but this time we're going to be focusing on the drug war. Yeah, the war on drugs, the so-called war on drugs, and also talk about some of the consequences of it. One of the major ones being the crack epidemic. And the differences between how America tackled the crack epidemic versus the current opioid epidemic. Right. So Nick, kick us off. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about, you know, drug use in America, because I think many of us have heard rumors or, you know, just heard little tidbits about how people used to use a variety of drugs for, you know, medicinal purposes and for recreation. And that was actually very, very true. So at the beginning of, even like at the beginning of the country, before the country, you know, was fully, you know, <laughs> the United States of America. Fully a country. Yeah, drugs drugs were used for both medicinal and recreational purposes. However, during the 1980s, various laws um, existed across states which, you know, either banned or regulated drug use. Uh, for example, in the 1870s, laws to prevent the use of opium uh, became, began to emerge in California. And some historians argue that this is due to this was done to target Chinese immigrants who had come in droves during that decade and were largely really? working yeah large, I never they were, knew that that's that's news to me yeah they, uh, most of the, mo- many of them were working in uh, you know the rail on the railroads in mines or in factories and you started to see small communities Chinese um, uh, communities you know emerge and some some historians say that you know uh, some of the whites began to see that as a threat especially to <laughs> white women and their virtue of that's course. actually a common theme when it comes to the drug war to be honest um uh, m- uh, the threat to white women not, well that and the threat to just whiteness period because white people felt that that was a threat to their uh, their power and I'm going to get to that um, later on because it's actually, that's one of the reasons why the war on drugs came into being. Um, but apparently, from what I was researching, Chinese um, immigrants would, you know, spend most of their days working. And then when they, when they would come home, they would, you know, smoke opium just like some other people did. Not just Ch- Chinese weren't the only people that did this. But um, it was just like, you know, how people your white workers or your black workers, anyone would come home, would have a long day at work and they come home and just want to have a drink. You know, this was their form of recreation. I know that that was something that they did in China, according to the research that I uh, found, but this was one of the ways that the whites in power could exploit that use of opium to um, criminalize the Chinese immigrants who were here. So then by the 1990s, attitudes regarding recreational drugs and alcohol began to shift and we started to see federal legislation uh, banning the use of you know recreational drugs and alcohol too so in 1909 you had the smoking epium exclusion act uh, which banned the importation possession and the uses of opium for smoking and recreational use Um, however it still could be used uh, for medicinal purposes now shortly after that you had prohibition from 1919 to 1930 and you saw what happened during the prohibition era right 
all that, of the that failed completely. Yes, because people were still getting their alcohol, and you actually had uh, an increase in crim- in crime, which became and, lucrative, which the mm-hmm. government did not like. Exactly. So, anytime one of the things that you'll notice, one of the themes you'll notice in history is whenever the government starts to heavily penalize things like alcohol drugs you start to see an increase in in crime obviously and it only leads to having more detrimental a long-term detrimental impact so you had the um prohibition and then after that you know drugs like marijuana and cocaine were still were, were, were not completely they were being used but there wasn't a whole lot of legislation or regulation on it um, until the, I want to say like the late 19, the 1930s, going into the 40s, 50s, and the 60s. But then by the 1970s, um, the war on drugs began. Uh, President Nixon referred to drug abuse as public enemy number one. And in 1970, Nixon signed the Controlled Substance Act, which arranged drugs into five schedules. Um, with Schedule 1 being considered the most dangerous. And so your Schedule 1 drugs included marijuana, LSD, heroin, and ecstasy. And uh, Nixon saw that the creation of the Drug Enforcement Agency be done in 1973. And this uh, agency uh, focused primarily on illegal drugs, illegal drug use, I'm sorry, and uh, drug trafficking in the United States. And they, you know, the, the DEA still exists today. Now, this is where things start to get interesting because many people have said for years that uh, drugs, that the, the war on drugs was racist, inherently racist. It was done to dismantle the black community. And I've actually found a lot of uh, research that supports that. So John Ehrlichman was Nixon's domestic policy chief. And in an interview in 1994, he all but, I mean, he didn't even all, but he, he basically just flat out said that uh, the Nixon administration orchestrated the war on drugs in an effort to um, allow Nixon to come into power by devastating the, his two biggest um, political enemies or two biggest threats to his um, administration, which were the anti-war political left and Black Americans. So Ehrlichman, and I'm, I'm actually going to just quote exactly what he said. So this is what he said in that interview in 1994. He said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So that's a direct quote from that interview that he did in 1994. And Wow. I've, I've yeah. never known. So, so it isn't paranoia. The war on drugs was literally created to... Uh-huh. It was done because that was just... That was how Nixon was able to come into power. Wow. And we all know what happened with Nixon. Of course, um, everything he did was shady. Yeah, hello Watergate.
my issue with, with the war on drugs is that it's done nothing but have harmful impacts on uh, black communities, communities of color, Hispanic communities, and even, you know, working class, poor whites, you know, it's negatively impacted this group of people as well. Um, but obviously disproportionately affected African American, black, I'm sorry, black Americans and Hispanic Americans. So one of the, one of the things he, he mentioned was we could arrest their leaders, we could raid their homes, we could break up their meetings, you know, a lot of, at the time, a lot of these communities were coming together in order to um, better their communities. So when they were attacking community, you know, Black and Hispanic and um, other, you know, minority community leaders, they were leaving our communities vulnerable to crime, poverty, and a lack of direction. And that, again, had nothing but negative consequences for uh, people of color and Black folks in this country. And I'd also like to mention how, at the time, a lot of jobs in manufacturing, um, you know, your, and then your steel mills and, you know, those type of jobs were actually being phased out or outsourced to other countries. So a lot of these communities who heavily relied on those manufacturing jobs for so long um, didn't have access to that anymore. And these communities were becoming, you know, impoverished and lacking a lot of resources and a lot of, you know, economic, you know, stimulation. So that's going to play a huge role in the crack epidemic that, you know, that immediately happens in the 19, in the 1980s. So after Nixon, I know from what I was reading, Jimmy Carter actually ran on a platform saying that he was going to decriminalize marijuana. Um, But when Nixon, I'm sorry, when Reagan That only took about 40 to 50 years. (laughs) But when um, when Reagan when Reagan came into um, office in the 1980s, he actually reinstated a lot of Nixon's um, policies regarding the war on drugs, and he actually extended them even further. And that's kind of what led that th- th- those conditions set the stage for the crack epidemic. But you, when we talk about the policies that were set in place. For the crack epidemic, you have to talk about the difference um, in the punishment. Because gonna, cra- I definitely crack, want to talk about yes, that. Yes, because crack is another form of powder cocaine. It's just like the hard freebase version. Well, yeah. So, but for them to be for them to be the same drug, there are two different penalties. They're not. And that's the thing. They're not really the same. They're not the same drug. Crack is a derivative of cocaine, but it's more it's more it's more intense so it gives you a a greater uh euphoric high but it's also very short-lived and the thing with crack is once you get that high you can never get that first high again that's right so that makes it very addictive people are constantly chasing that high but they can never get it so that's why you know it's considered very addictive but let's talk about some of the business aspects of it because crack was actually more profitable than cocaine was because the production of crack was more efficient and it allowed the uh, people, the drug dealers and the people who manufactured the crack to have economies of scale. So they could, they could produce larger quantities of, co- of crack um, and distribute it to more people. And that, again, was very lucrative. But as you mentioned, crack was more harshly punished than cocaine was. So here's 
when during the Reagan administration, one of the ways that they wanted to try to combat crime, specifically, you know, drug crime, was to try to deter it. And in, to, in, in, to do that, they made very harsh sentences for people who were in possession of crack or cocaine. But it's the amounts that play a role in, you know, how much time they get or whether or not they were convicted in the first place. So possession of crack cocaine carried a mandatory minimum sentence of five years for just having five grams of crack. It would take 500 grams of cocaine to get a five-year prison term. So already right there, you can see that it's not equal. You it's have, not equal because the people who use the drugs is different. Co- powder, exactly. Powder cocaine was mostly used by the wealthy, the, the wealthy yuppies elite. on Wall Street. On Wall Street, exactly. Which was in on in Hollywood movies, the people like in the movie Wall Street or the people in Scarface. The rich white, the rich wealthy white people were all doing powder cocaine. Right. So of course they'll get licenses, but the black and brown people were using crack. Exactly, and think about that too. Five grams of cocaine. I'm sorry, five grams of crack is not that much, but 500 grams of cocaine is a lot. No one's walking around with 500 grams of cocaine on them. Not, at least I don't I don't think so. But I would hope not. That's asking for <laughs> that, That's almost 18 ounces of um that's a couple that's a couple uh that's like a that's a little bit over a pound of cocaine. No one's walking around with that much cocaine on them. But crack 5 grams isn't isn't much at all. And they were selling like really small, I think uh vials of crack, of, of crack for like five to twenty dollars and um people who were caught with in the possession of it were automatically given five if they were convicted five years in prison so now you have a prison record now one of the things you notice too in the 1980s between the 1980s and the 1990s was the um the surge in the prison population so in 1980 there were approximately 330 thousand people in state and federal prisons by 1990 that number jumped to 771,000 people and then today that number is hovering around 1.8 million people damn that's such such a short amount of time for um the prison population to you know grow so exponentially yeah and a lot of it can be attributed to especially the, the first part of it um, can be attributed to the the war on drugs in the 1980s in the 1990s now one of the things that really disturbed me too was the fact the government did, just didn't seem to take the epidemic seriously and we already know because it was dealing with it, it mostly impacted poor whites black folks and you know Hispanic folks and people of color so that's precisely why the government was just like mm, whatever what they did do was Nancy Reagan's just say no campaign <laughs> do you like supporting local business how about black owned local business or even better a black female owned local business well if you do we have the perfect business or you, Black Forward Clothing Inc., a new clothing brand owned and designed by Mercedes Scott. They have an array of affordable clothes such as t-shirts, jackets, hoodies, joggers, and even a face mask. So you can fight COVID in style. They say true to their slogan, it's more than a name, it's a power movement. 
by pushing their brand to bring awareness to mental health and anti-hate. So support the movement by supporting the brand. You can find a link for the store in the description below. Can we talk let's about that? No. Can we talk yes. about that? Let's 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 talk about that because, because that was tragic. Very tragic. I did some research and I feel like that they found out that they spent over over a million dollars on the Just Say No campaign. They mm. put so much in there. They actually have like, um, have you seen the the Flintstones Just Just Say No to Drugs, like Michael Jackson thing? I don't think I've ever seen that one. I'm gonna this I'm gonna email it to you right now because it's. The craziest thing I've seen. They took um, Just Beat It and then they switched the lyrics to Just Say No um, and it's Flintstones and that apparently cost them a couple a couple hundred thousand just to do that. Just so they wouldn't be sued by Michael Jackson to do this. Oh, you know, he would have sued too. <laughs> yes. So I'm like, this is what, like, play it and then we'll talk about it. Because this is what they were doing instead of what they should have been doing. Wait, did I see this? You probably have. Oh, I have seen this. If you watch the documentary on yeah, 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 yeah. I did Netflix, see this. yeah. So they, they were doing stuff like that. Nancy Reagan's going around talking about just say no to drugs, don't do drugs. Spending all this money on a campaign and it did nothing. And then her her big like, see, this is what drugs do to you. Like her big like example of that was Lynn Baez. I do remember seeing a lot of these commercials growing up. I mean, I don't know if that was just an extension of the of the Just Say No campaign or if that's what you know that's what started it. But you know, because we had Dare in high school, Dare. all of that seemed to emerge as a result of the war on drugs. And <laughs> none of that shit actually stopped people from doing. Yeah, drugs. I feel like especially. <laughs> If, if, if you're from money. a community, if you're from the community, you already as a distrust of government mm -hmm. and especially and especially conservative government. When they're dangling this thing in front of you and it's like, don't do this, it's bad, it's bad, don't do this, that entices you to be like, well, F it, I'm gonna I'm gonna go do this because they said it's not cool to do, so it must be cool if like the rickety old white ladies out there talking about just enough drugs. I never had a desire to do drugs, but a lot of it was because of just caution. I mean, and this could be, I guess, contribute. Con this could be the result of like the war on drugs and how it's affected people. But my parents just weren't like supportive of drug use at all. And there were, we grew up hearing a lot of cautionary tales about family members or you know close family friends who I had, that same had issues with that. So maybe in a way I was kind of scared straight by my parents for, you know, telling me these, these stories growing up, but it, it also just never appealed to me. You know, I just never thought like, oh, I really want to take a mind altering substance, even alcohol in high school. I mean, I, I mean, of course, I think we've all experimented. I'm not going to say we all have, but I think I definitely I did, have. And I, I think experimented with alcohol my senior year of high school. I've I didn't experimented get... with alcohol and all kinds of drugs. I've done mm -hmm. most, I try everything once. And but I'm I kind of person, very... I don't have an addictive personality, so I can just like do something and then never like yeah. need again. That was kind of, that I was kind of my philosophy too. Once. Like I, I, if I didn't like something, I was just like, or if it just wasn't for me, it wasn't for me. Like drinking, I don't even drink that much now because of like, just how it impacts my body. I drink I've socially. I've always felt like that. I smoke socially. Yeah. I but don't... 
I don't and see last year when they legalized uh, recreational marijuana in Illinois of course I experimented that was like my first time really experimenting with it I had an edible a couple times and you know it was fine but it, like I said it really wasn't my thing I don't know I, I guess because we don't have addictive personalities we don't know what that's like yeah and like I said I'm not knocking anybody for you know if that's your recreational you know activity that you enjoy doing I'm not gonna you know judge you for that there's nothing that if that's your thing that's your thing you enjoy doing it have your fun um but unfortunately those campaigns didn't curb didn't curve people's it didn't curb people's interests but people's attitudes especially those hardcore conservatives who have very negative attitudes about drug use see no issue with all of this all of these extreme um, policies that negatively and disproportionately impacted black people and people of color and like you were saying like Drug dealers were making profit because I was watching documentary. They, the people were talking about like, yeah, there were commercials talking about go work at McDonald's, go get a job. But they're like, but working at McDonald's back then, you were making like five dollars an hour. Not even. You, you could like, you could barely pay rent, mm-hmm. pay for school, and they're like, why would I be busting my ass for a paycheck every two weeks, like three hundred bucks, when I could just stand on my corner and sell crack to the local crackheads and make right. a couple thousands a day, make a couple thousands an hour? Yes, some people. I was. I did it uh, from from my research. I saw that some communities, on average, some drug dealers could actually make about two thousand dollars, two thousand dollars a month just selling crack. And um, that's good money in the 1980s, $2,000 a month. You know, some people don't even make that now. And in the 1980s, especially in communities where they were all, like I said, like I mentioned earlier, they were already um, conditions because a lot of the job opportunities that had previously existed in these communities or nearby had left. So they really didn't have too many other um, choices. There was not a lot of economic stimulation in those neighborhoods. Now, what would have made sense instead of harshly punishing people for drug use and drug possession would have, you know, probably been to maybe create job opportunities and stimulate the economies in these neighborhoods so that crime wouldn't be the first place that people would look. Because a lot of these people only got into crime because they really had no other choice. Just say no to drugs, but it's like, okay, I say no to drugs, but what else do you have to offer me besides telling me to just say no? And that's that's another reason why that campaign failed, because it wasn't actually providing resources, much needed resources to those communities. Yes, it raised awareness to the dangers, the potential dangers of drugs, but hell, the dangers of drugs were dying and getting, you know, having, you know, getting sick from drugs with people losing their children and their families. But those are all devastating consequences. And then going to jail and prison or getting a prison record, because once you get a prison record, it's very difficult to find employment. Let's talk about the cops and their relationship to the war on drugs. Mm. Now, initially, they would just pick up these drug dealers and be like, we won't take you in if you cut us in for the profit. Until one drug dealer was tired of being, one drug dealer was arrested, but he was gonna get out, but he was like, it'd be mean to make a point so no more cops arrest us. So he called, made a call from jail and had one of his his people kill these two. Well, he shot at them and I think only one died. And then after that, it was never gonna bring the hammer down on you guys. Now we're arrested everyone because- It wasn't until the crack epidemic affected them personally then the cops are ready to, to crack down but they, they by cracking down they made things worse for all these new policies and it's like yeah i get that you want to you don't want to lose anybody else 
but you're making you're making it hell and you're punishing the whole community for the acts of some. And like again, this is all dealing with crack. This isn't this isn't related to the cocaine. Oh, um, cocaine is still flashy. How is that cocaine getting here? Yeah. So yes, how was the cocaine getting here? Do you have any information about that? Well, see, this is the thing. I'm pretty sure we've all we've all heard you know rumors of you know the, the CIA bringing the cocaine to these communities. Well, don't the CIA do it? Um, because they were trying to fund a war, an illegal war with Nicaragua and they were trafficking drugs there's a whole apparently i think they were they from what i was researching there iran was t- was 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 involved because they were selling guns to iran or something like that and i was like trying to find information about this because the, there has been there have been multiple investigations done by the government on the cia and like you know everyone who's allegedly been involved in this but they keep saying that there is no evidence no evidence to support these claims, these allegations. That's because they either don't want to find it or they're just ignoring it. Exactly. I'm not going to sit here and, because again, they say, no, how the drugs are getting over here if you have all this, you're, you're really tough on crime. And that's something that Democrats and Republicans um, use as a bargaining chip for decades um, from the 19... 19- 70s into the 1990s and early 2000s being tough on crime like that was their thing being now we're tough seeing, on drugs uh, well tough on crime and t- tough on drugs uh, too but it was always you know crime period because you know remember in 1990 was it 1990 the 1990s when they uh when president was it clinton who enacted the three strikes law yep that was that was good old bill and you know there's always this strum on the heartstrings of conservatives who are just fearful of crime and crime being an issue in their communities and whatnot and you know i just one of the things I, I really think people need to understand is that crime a lot of the times exists in, in areas where there's just poverty where there's little economic, you know, development, economic, economic stimulation and support, you're going to have crime. And it's not that people, especially Black people, are just inherently bad or, you know, predisposed to crime. When you've enslaved them for, de- for their ancestors for centuries and then had them live during decades of, discri- of, of you know, government-sanctioned discrimination, you're not pretty providing them with a lot of economic support and opportunities. So you're going to see crime in some of these, in, 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 the, in these areas. It has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It has everything to do with the racism that they've experienced as a result of the color of their skin. But I don't want to get too off topic. being flown in on into florida from columbia because columbia because cocaine was a cash crop in columbia yeah that was a that they were making tons of money they were sending like kilos of this stuff on planes trucks all kinds yeah. of stuff and it's like how how was it getting in through customs exactly how how are you able to fly this stuff over international waters and have it distributed throughout the, the country doesn't make sense now i did a little bit of research and I actually had watched the movie a long time ago. I forgot the name of the movie, but are you familiar with Gary Webb? No, no, no. Who's Gary Webb? Gary Webb was an investigative journalist and <clears throat> he actually wrote a series of articles called, the, it, was a, it was a series called The Dark Alliance and it appeared in the Mercury News in 1996. Um, it basically chronicled the origins of the crack cocaine trade in Los Angeles. And it focused on how the CIA was working with different groups, well, the anti-communist Contra rebels in Nicaragua to, again, 
trafficked the drugs, the, the, the cocaine or whatever here to the United States in order to fund a war to prevent the spread of communism in Nicaragua. So this was an actual, actually an illegal war that the CIA was funding on cocaine. He exposed all of this. He exposed all of this, but, you know, sparked outrage. It led to a lot of investigations, but there's no evidence. No, they, they could never find any evidence to support the claims that were being made. And you know what happened to him? I just looked it up. He, well, his official cause of death is suicide. But from what I'm reading, people think it's he died suspicious. Very strange, very strange. Because for suicide, he had there were multiple gunshot wounds, and mm-hmm. he shot himself in the head. So how was there multiple gunshot wounds if he was suicide? So he died under very strange circumstances, and people are wondering, you know, if this was a hit, you know, because the Dark Alliance series is still one of those things that's very polarizing. You know, people either believe it or they don't. And a lot of people don't want to believe that the United States government could be, you know, capable of very harsh and terrible things. But we as Black folks know that they can be. So I'm not going to sit here and act like, you know, it's not possible. Going back to the, the rise of cocaine in, the, in America, um, it first entered America through all the cartels in um, Colombia. Mm-hmm. In 1981, by 1982, most of New York and Miami was flooded with both cocaine. Uh, still, not much crack. People are still not really giving nat- national attention to crack because it it's in the inner city urban areas. Yeah. And yeah. then in 1984, was- Nancy Reagan launches the Just Say No anti-drug mm-hmm. campaign. Spends. Mm-hmm a lot of money on that and by 1980 by the mid 80s there were all this like extradition extradition treaties or extraditions like send these people over here because they're in the cartel but then the, the Colombian government's protecting them the American government's not really trying hard but then by 88 by 87 88 now there's a big like overhaul on we need to crack down on the crack users but still not giving much attention to the cocaine users I will say too, a lot of the devastation and harmful consequences of the drug, the war on drugs and drug trafficking in the United States caused a lot of instability in South and Central America too. So that's precisely why we see a lot of crime in South and Central America now because of the United States, the United States role in that. And that's why you have a lot of people traveling from those areas trying to get to the United States because of all of the devastation that the United States actually caused or contributed to. I shouldn't say they caused it all, but they they definitely contributed to it. And, you know, this has just had very devastating consequences, both domestically and internationally. Yep, and there still wasn't a big focus on crack cocaine and, and the spotlight and the headlines until, like, 1986 when a big... Um, basketball player college basketball player who was just who had just been recently drafted into the nba died of accident to cocaine overdose uh lynn bias who turned who also just happened to be black which also feel the the rhetoric of the black people are the ones who are using these drugs and have to bring down the hammer on them there was also a, a football player who had died of using crack um, a couple of musicians, but the ones that were being like toted on to like the media were all the black Americans, the black. Then you had stereotypes like the crack baby, um, 
the strung out crack mom like they you you, you constantly the myth of the crack babies <laughs> there is there is no because they make it seem like if you do crack while you're pregnant or at all your baby's going to have you're going to come out with a crack baby and that's actually not true at all that's not completely supported not completely supportive the, the number of people babies born with crack is way lower by number of babies who are born with HIV or AIDS. Or, um, and, and, well, I guess when you, when you think of it too, how many people are, how many children are actually born with HIV, AIDS is still a relatively small number. Yep. Even compared, and people, so I guess that was the point that they were making. Okay. So I was going to say like, what about the kids who are born with, from parents who, from mothers who have consumed alcohol um, throughout their pregnancy? They knowing, have more inherent, inherent risk than cocaine, than crack does. Mm-hmm. Most babies weren't, majority of the babies who Whose they were mother because- were ingesting crack, crack during the pregnancy had no mental or brain um, issues. Yeah, they did have no physical issues. So they, were, they try to make it seem like those kids are going to be born addicted to crack, essentially, or just dying. People just, or just giving you know. birth. I mm-hmm. watched. I went to YouTube and I looked up reports on crack, and so majority of those old news report clips are all about the crack baby. The crack baby. Like, I'm like, no, like, no, that's not, it's not factual. You're, you're, you're spreading misinformation. Definitely. And, and then to also scary. talk about, to go back to Lynn Baez, the Reagan administration used his death to get a committee together to pass the Anti Drug Act of 1986, mm-hmm. which went into law October 27, 1986. And it states that. A mandatory minimum prison term of 20 years and a maximum and a maximum life sentence, along with a fine up to two million dollars, and it's called the Lynn Bias Law. So they used this 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 young man's death to pass legislation that strict, extreme, extreme, extreme 20 years to life. And that's why so many black people are in prison now. There are more people on life terms because of drugs than there are people who committed. Now, I was doing some research about, you know, current demographic, prison demographics, and they were saying that it's actually different now. Um, More people are in jail for other reasons, not, or in prison in jail too, but for reasons outside of drugs. So drugs aren't the primary reason people are in jail now. But at the beginning of this surge in the incarceration rates, it was mostly, you know, because of drug, the war on drugs. I, I, I'm, it's just, it's all really, it's frustrating, but it's, it's fascinating at the same time. I, just to see it happen, you know, the numbers just go as high as they, you know, as fast as they did. You know, 1980 to 1990, just, you know, it's just one decade, it's just 10 years. But the the rate, the prison incarceration rate went up over 100% in that time period. Wait, 100? Over 100%. It was it went from 330,000 people to 771,000 people. What? From between 1980 and 1990. That's like 100 and, I think, 100 and, uh, I think 130 or something like that percentage. I just feel like they had a very poor response. They they were so quick to, to associate it with the black and brown communities of America. Now, are you, did you did you find the number? Yeah, it was 130, I had to just did the math, 133% in 10 oh, years. 133%, damn. 133%, and the thing is, you're looking at the number of people that were incarcerated, complete, the total prison population was 330,000 in 1980. Think of how many people it took, how, how many years it took to get to that number between, you know, the beginning of our prison system 
1980. Then you go from 1980 to 1990, it goes up, it, it more than doubles. That's, that is, that is insane. That's because they were quick to, to slap a black and brown faces on, onto the drugs to associate it with. So they could be like, that's a them problem, not a American problem. They're always criminalized, you know, black people and people of color in this country. And up until this this new wave of legalizing marijuana, the last like 20 years or so, people were going were being locked up for having amounts of weed that were no bigger than a dime. And they were doing like five or 10 years for that. Mm-hmm. People were incarcerated for like 10 years for, for weed. But now in s- some states here in America, it's becoming legal. And then they're also have changed a bunch of laws and legislation. But then when we look at how they're doing the opioid epidemic, there are rehab centers everywhere. There's rehab centers, there's social workers you can talk to, there's therapists, there's support groups. Why? Because the people who are affected by opioids are suburban, are white white suburban teens. Yes, they're white. White suburban teens and college students, affluent people, not the inner city black and brown people. So of course the response has to be different. They're actually being provided with resources that are, that will help them. <laughs> yes, because they're what not they, being what, what do they do for what they do for the crack epidemic? Make stupid commercials that weren't effective. Make stupid songs that weren't effective. And then I, I don't want to blame them, but the black community didn't do much either. I mean, I, one of the biggest songs of like the early '90s is Crack Rock. Oh God! Have you heard that song? Yeah, I heard that song. Heard that was. And I looked it up. That song was like up there on the Billboard charts. And think about all the comedians who've, you know, profited off jokes about crackheads. And and I mean, I'm not telling anyone that they, what they can and cannot, you know, create art based on. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just, my point is, you know, we've, black people have even profited off of it in that, in that way. And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of sad. It, it's, it's very difficult for me to laugh and make jokes about that when I think about all the lives that have been destroyed needlessly because of, you know, everything that happened with the crack epidemic. It's, it's just been very devastating. And it's hard for me to find those jokes funny anymore. And I know people use, people like to use humor as a way to, you know, deal with hardship and the negative experiences that they've had in life. It's just, it's very difficult when I think about the more I've learned about the crack epidemic because you know we weren't even really alive during the height of it so with their response to how they police and treated people who were on crack it had ripple effects um they were just ripping these people out of their homes while their kids were there mm-hmm. these people are strung out probably didn't even know but that they were being arrested so of course when you read them their Miranda rights they don't understand they weren't in this state of mind to be arrested or be, be fully aware arrested. of their rights. Yeah, yeah. To be properly arrested. And then for those poor kids who are watching these people knock That's down traumatic. their door and see, yeah, it's traumatic. And it's like that has lasting effects. That causes those kids to grow up to not, not to trust the police, to see it as a us versus them mentality, which further the violence and furthers the, the hate crimes. I just, because this is, a, it was a lot. I just don't, 
understand how people how people still don't un- just don't get how fucked up the government is <laughs> or has been and how and, the government's still trying to hide everything they've done mm-hmm. now i want to do some more research on this but you know kamala harris went to guatemala this past week and people have been speculating oh. yeah because they were talking about how she wants to try to she had made she had made very um controversial remarks about immigrants traveling to the southern border saying don't come here and people were really pissed off about that and i've been seeing you know articles and i want to so i said i want to research this more about how she went to guatemala and she's trying to actually address the root causes of people immigrating in the first place so that they don't feel the need to have to leave their country so that they can stay there and you know have opportunities economic opportunities in their own country instead of leaving them leaving for the united states but one of the things i know one of the reasons why i know people have been leaving their countries is because of the violence that's there the gang violence you know the threat of their lives they're not just leaving I mean, economic opportunities are a part of it, but their immediate safety is is being threatened too. So, I really want to read up on that. But I know for I know from what I've researched now that a lot of the instability that exists in parts of Central and South America is the result of the war on drugs and you know just the drug trafficking um, that has that has existed for decades now that the that the United States has been you know, involved in. The United States is that kid in the playground who pulls somebody's hair or throws dirt in somebody's face and then when a teacher's like, did you do this? They're like, I didn't do it. My I'm, my hands behind my back. I did nothing. I'm, I'm innocent. And blame, or blame somebody else. But you know, you damn know? well they did it. Like, for the most part, when it comes to, like, the drugs for, like, ecstasy and methamphetamine, their responses to those drugs in the early 2000s still weren't as in the 80s. And from what I'm reading, the current opioid epidemic has currently claimed more lives than the crack epidemic. But you won't see those numbers because the people who are mostly being affected- Affluent white people. Yep. They flaunt the numbers when it comes to crack cocaine because that shows that the black and brown people were dying or using the drug more than the white people. But when the white people are dying more from the opioid epidemic, why don't we why don't we see that? Why isn't that some hot, flashy button issue? Why isn't that driving these crazy legislations? Why aren't they talking about that on the nightly news and vilifying white people for their their choice of you know drug use? Mm-hmm. They were flashing all kinds of black crack babies, and for that that too, they were only showing like black people in these reports and i'm just like they were only showing black people hispanics and puerto ricans mm-hmm. and then you black might black see black. some white people sprinkled in there and it's like and they were a part of it too poor whites you know were doing crack and they were involved in the in the crack epidemic as well yep but the face has always been in black and brown black, black that and brown what, to try to criminalize and vilify black and brown that what invokes fear you hang out with those people you're gonna get hooked on crap but just and then seeing it in in the movies like new jack city which i love new jack city i like that movie because it showed you both sides of the crack epidemic it showed you how someone can take it sell it and become profitable but it also showed you how in the like when it comes to chris rock's character how they can get so strung out on Wait, on crap. Yeah, that was made in in 1991. Mm-hmm. So that's you know during that's during this era that we're speaking of. Or they were after right the in the middle of it. of it. And it's definitely a movie that I was like, hey, 
Because I also saw that movie come up several times in like a lot of documentaries and stuff. And it was just, I was like, okay. But the areas in America that were mostly, that were largely affected by um, the crack epidemic were New York, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and to a smaller scale, Chicago. Mm-hmm. But in for New York, it was like the Bronx and Queens, which is mostly where black and brown Americans live. For Los Angeles, it was Inglewood and yeah. South Central. Yeah. Majority yeah. of Atlanta. And for Chicago, at that point, it was mostly on the south side of Chicago and a little where uh, the South Loop begins. Those were the major cities in area, inner city areas that were affected around the country. And you still see the destruction, the result, the the consequences of those of that destruction to this day. You drive in those neighborhoods, you know, it's 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 yeah. it's and, really bad. And for those, those that were that was, they haven't been gentrified, because you know, gentrification. Yeah. And for and, those who are listening, who, who might have noticed that I didn't mention Miami, Miami did have a bad drug problem, but in Miami, the drug of choice was powder cocaine. cocaine. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. Yeah. And I didn't mention Manhattan or Wall Street because they were doing powder cocaine yeah. see the thing is even in the even in the drug world there is still the haves and the have not still the haves <laughs> and have but there's also still like what you can afford yeah. the white people were doing the powder cocaine because that was like 200 to 300 dollars crack five dollars ten dollars twenty dollars it was yeah. it was affordable somewhat affordable it was more affordable and then yeah. The drug dealers, depending on how the, the cracked out woman looked, they were trading, well, you don't got the money, well, you can get this you can get this rock in other ways. Yes. Yeah. So they created prostitution rings and things like that. So when it's more affordable, of course you're gonna sell more, of course it's gonna be more profitable, of course it's gonna be wider spread. And of course, the poor black and brown communities are gonna flock to that one because they can afford it. Exactly. I mean most of them said they tried crack for the first time because it was a cheaper version than cocaine and from what they were seeing on Scarface and other Hollywood movies all the cool wealthy people were doing cocaine and this was like okay this is our version not knowing that yes it's cheaper but it's also more addictive should we do an intro